Welcome back to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, where we are breathing a big sigh of relief about a manufactured crisis being averted. I'm Kara ong Whaley, And I'm Kyle Kondik. Last night, the House of Representatives passed 314 to 117, passed legislation uh, to increase the debt limit with more Democrats supporting it than Republicans. Um, out of 100 members of the House Progressive Caucus, 60 voted yes and 40 voted no. Out of 43 hard-right Republicans who, either me- who are either members of the House Freedom Caucus or voted no against Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, eight voted yes, 34 voted no, and one didn't vote. Kyle, what do you see in terms of voting patterns and and what this vote on the debt limit might mean? Yeah, I mean, it was you know a truly bipartisan vote in that you had you know substantial members, su- substantial numbers of both Democrats and Republicans voting for it. Um, and look, I think there were you know there were a lot of Republicans who wanted to support the Speaker um, and also felt like they had they had gotten something out of this whole exercise and. Uh, the Democrats felt like, generally speaking, they wanted to support the president and avoid a default. Um, for the most part, members who are in competitive districts, as you know, determined by our crystal ball house ratings, they almost all voted for this. Um, actually, one of the big exceptions is none other than George Santos of New York State, who may or may not be on the ballot last year. We have his race to toss up. I think if he actually was the nominee, he would be a pretty clear underdog in the general election, but we got a ways to go on that. But Santos voted no on this. Um, there were a, a handful of other members in somewhat competitive districts. Um, Johanna Hayes on the Democratic side, um, Ryan Zinke and Scott Perry on the Republican side, um, who voted no on this. But for the most part, you know, people who are in competitive districts on both sides, you know, voted for this, which sort of makes sense um, because this is sort of the, um, I think, sort of maybe the, the more centrist position, I guess, would be to, to vote for this. And the, as you mentioned, some of the more ideological factions on the on both the Democratic and Republican sides produced a lot of the, the no votes on this uh, on this bill. But, you know, ultimately, like, um, uh, you know, the, I do feel like as a country, we're sort of playing with fire with this debt limit. And maybe one of these days we're actually will have a default, which I think um, most people feel like would be really bad for the country. Um, but it seems like we, you know, we're able to get through this one probably with less pain than um, than, than maybe some of these kinds of battles in the past. Um, and so I think probably the, you know, the president and, and, and Speaker McCarthy deserve some credit for uh, navigating this thing. And, you know, McCarthy, you know, when he got um, took 15 ballots to make him a speaker, it seemed like he might be a short termer in the job. I guess that may still be the case, but it doesn't seem like he's likely to lose his position over this. Um, and he was able to um, get something he could sell to, you know, obviously most of his conference, although um, there were a lot of Republicans who ended up voting uh, no on it. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned how we have come so close in this negotiation uh, to to default and, and really the the previous time where we, we came just as close, if not closer, um, was in 2011. And that really, I think, provided looking back at at the negotiations in 2011 really provide some insights into what happened this time around. You know, it seemed that one of the big takeaways for Democrats then was not to negotiate. And for a while, that seemed to be what we saw playing out this time around, though Biden's, you know, really seemed to be more open to negotiation and pursuing that path while letting other members of his party, you know, hold the line. It also seems like from 2011, Republicans 
have started thinking about using the debt limit as a means, as a political moment for for leverage. It seems like Biden's commitment to negotiation has ended up allowing different factions, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side, um, to get something to save face. Is that your sense of it? Yeah, I do think that was the case. It, you know, again, it doesn't seem like, um, you know, from Biden's perspective, or from a Democratic perspective, that he like gave away the farm or something. And, you know, the Republicans did pass their alternative with, you know, with Republican votes, uh, you know, uh, leading up to this. And, you know, a lot of things they, they wanted in that they, they didn't end up getting. And there are different interpretations even of what's in this bill. Like, um, you know, there, there are certain work requirements that were added for food uh, for food stamps, but there are also uh, maybe more people who are going to be eligible for food stamps. So there's, you know, it's sort of you can you can sort of spin it in different ways and look in, in some ways. That's the sign of a, a good negotiation in the sense that that everybody can sort of save face on it um, to, to a certain degree. Also, it's interesting that, you know, I think both the speaker and the president realized that in order for the speaker to sell this to Republicans, that the speaker had to make it seem like he was getting a big victory here. And the president kind of didn't say he was getting a big victory in his own in his own sense. Um, so it was almost like there was there was a little bit of performance art going on directed, frankly, to people in the Republican caucus who were never going to vote for this package anyway. You know, if you look at some of the Freedom Caucus folks um, who didn't like, you you know, who were skeptical of McCarthy as speaker and, you know, didn't vote for this deal. Um, But it was it was a two tiered process because not only was it getting a deal through to avert default, it also was getting a deal through in such a way that McCarthy would lose the speakership. So he had to think about that, too, which is why I think he was trying to sort of appease a certain number of people on his right flank who were never going to vote for the deal, but also would be the backbone of an effort to remove him as speaker. But again, that seems to have uh, that seems to have petered out. So, you know, McCarthy is taking something of victory lap. Reasonable people can disagree as how much that deserve that's deserved. But I think you at least say that he's proven to be to have more longevity as speaker than maybe it seemed like in the aftermath of that historic speaker vote in which it seemed like he might not even get the job period or be um, very much, you know, short termer there. And part of it too, is that some of the people we think of as hard hardliners on the Republican side, um, be it like Jim Jordan of Ohio or Thomas Massey of Kentucky, you know, they decided to play ball with, uh, with, with McCarthy to at least some degree on this, um, which has been, you know, helpful to, to the speaker. So, um, you know, ultimately like we look at, you know, who voted for it and who voted against it. I don't know if this is going to be a vote that really has much electoral impact for 2024. You know, it's the sort of thing that seems that is really important at the time, but probably gets, you know, papered over by all sorts of other things that we care about next year. Um, it also may be that this House or just Congress in general for this two year session isn't all that productive because you've got, you know, um, different parties in control. Um, so uh, but, you know, I guess the positive thing is just that default was averted. Um Again, I do, you know, I do think it's reasonable to worry that one of these days we're not going to avert um, default, but uh, it ended up being taken care of this time. I think part of the problem with the brinkmanship, you know, back in 2011, it led to um, S&P downgrading the nation's credit for the first time in history. And that, I think, contributed to undermining global global trust in the country's economy. And so it doesn't seem like this kind of brinkmanship is going to go anywhere anytime soon. And it's not just the United States economy at stake, it's also the global economy. And and all of this is, you know, sort of, again, a, a manufactured crisis, um, self and 
self-imposed. So I, one of the things we did ask on on Twitter about this is, um, you know, historically, the debt limit was seen as a way to make, you know, to run the economy more and, and help government run more effectively. But policymakers are increasingly thinking that having a, a debt limit discussion um, is more trouble than it's worth, especially if it's sort of forcing these kind of political games and, and parties using it as political leverage for political leverage. And so far in our unscientific survey, majority by 80 percent to 20 percent think that we should abolish um, the debt ceiling of our of our Twitter followers. Uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, um, a Democrat from Maryland who may or may not run for Senate in 2024, I think he put it best. He said, this is the weirdest legislation that anybody has ever asked to vote on since I got here. Nobody seems to support all of it. Everyone has problems with parts of it, but the macro alternative is absolutely indigestible. The, the debt limit itself, like, I guess there's also this sort of legal kind of argument. It's like, well, when Congress authorizes spending, and obviously the country spends more than it takes in in taxes, which is a whole other um, discussion, but you know, does the mere fact of authorizing that spending basically sort of allow us to sort of make sure that we pay for all of that. Um, throughout this this kind of this crisis, whatever you want to call it, there were some who were calling for like, uh, you know, the, a 14th Amendment solution that the president could just sort of unilaterally raise the debt limit or ignore the debt limit or mint, uh, you know, mint, have the treasury mint a trillion dollar coin or something like that. I mean, maybe we'll get to that point at some, at, you know, at, at some point. But I guess the question is, is that does the debt limit like serve a purpose other than to just allow it to be possible for us to default, which if, if it's if, if it just exists for that reason, then I think it's reasonable to question whether whether it should it should exist at all. Um, but uh, um, but again, I, you know, I, I do, again, I do wonder if, if it's at a certain point, some president is going to put these sort of constitutional questions to, to the test and then we would have some sort of big court fight over it, which, um, you know, if the court rules against the president in that instance, then we maybe would we have this immediate default? You know, I don't know. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it is this sort of like game of chicken that um, you know that that again, you just worry at some point is is, is going to turn out poorly. But um, it didn't. It didn't this time. Again, whatever one thinks of the deal itself, and it, and there are uh, um, again, there are different there are different ways to to spin it. Um, you know, one one way or the or the other. But again, it does. You know, I think Republicans are hoping to get a lot out of this. Doesn't seem like they got a lot out of it. But maybe that you know maybe they got something and uh, um, and that was enough for for you know the speaker to to make progress and also be able to, to save his job, which again it seems like he was able to navigate to do. I, I do wonder to what extent though they did actually get a lot right because if we think back to 2011 and the negotiations there, a lot of what was agreed to at that time ended up being rolled back by subsequent um, Congresses. So like I it. it the, the question it raises for me is, you know, is this really the vehicle and is this really the vehicle for negotiating spending cuts, which we need? Um, and, and and does it make sense to sort of play with the global economy, um, you know, for for these domestic disputes? Theoretically, the sort of budget process is probably the better vehicle for this. And this is sort of tied to the, the, the budget process. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that I think what, you know, what Democrats probably are upset by is that you can have this negotiation over these budget issues and, you know, tax increases are never really part of the negotiation. And so if you want to say the Democrats got rolled on it or, or lost on it, maybe that's part of what you would, you know, what you'd say about it. And, you know, like, like from a budget standpoint, like, um, I, you know, I'm not advocating for answers here and I don't know what the answers are, but like, if you have, 
Social Security, Medicare that you can't touch and you can't touch military, then like how much are you actually talking about? And, you know, there, there are lots of other programs that, you know, make up that part of the budget that you would have to basically slash and that's not going to go over also. So, um, you know, it's, it, and, and the, the, certainly the long-term pattern is that there's more borrowing and there's more spending. And, and, and again, like some people think that's, that's a real threat to the country. Others don't think it really matters. You know, I'm not taking a position on that either. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, to say that this, that it doesn't seem like that this particular agreement will have some sort of huge impact on the bottom line, really. And it's not, it's not really even, you know, it's, it's something that probably, you know, the Congress will get around at some point anyway. Kyle, thanks so much for sharing your insights on negotiations on the debt limit. Thank you. Coming up next, we talk with Paul Hobby, co-founder of the private equity firm Genesis Park, about Texas politics, including the impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, and about his new book, Glorious Tensions, Rediscovering Our Sacred Middle Ground in the Age of Extremism. Stay with us. Paul Hobby, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. We're just delighted to have you. Well, it's my honor to be here, Sarah. Thank you. Your your family has a long history of service in Texas politics, and you served as staff to a lieutenant governor and ran for comptroller of Texas in 1998, losing by just a mere half a percentage point. Um, if you're willing, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, recent trends in politics. Last week, Texas lawmakers issued 20 articles of impeachment against their state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, um, and it was a history-making vote. The House voted to impeach Mr. Paxton on May 27th. Um, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what this event might tell us about escalating conflict between moderates and more extreme members of the, the Texas Republican Party. Well, uh, again, I, I'm not a political analyst. Uh, you know, I probably am a seasoned observer of Texas politics, but, you know, what, what I understand about the inside baseball of the Republican Party is, you know, what a hog knows about Sunday, and that is nothing at all. But uh, from a distance, what happened last week is by any measure historic. The last time we had an impeachment trial, it was for a corrupt judge in South Texas. And my father was presiding officer. I remember it was 1975. He was bringing law books home because he's not a lawyer. And so how to fight over a quasi-judicial proceeding, he has no idea. But this is a sitting statewide official. You know, this is quite amazing. And uh, there was a broad bipartisan vote in the house. Obviously, somebody had given fully them being the Republican members that there's safety in them. You, know, you, you can't primary three quarters of the uh, Republicans in the house. And so what happens next, uh, stay tuned, but it's, um, it is quite remarkable what's happened. It's, it's like nothing I've seen. Um, our, our crystal ball readers, um, will be familiar with this, but Kyle Kondak, who's managing editor of the crystal ball has been doing some analyses of, uh, trends among presidential candidates. And one of the things he has found is since the 22,000 presidential elections, until now, there's been a growing trend of support for Democratic presidential candidates among Texas voters. And I also recently did an analysis of state Supreme Court races for all of the elections that will be occurring in 2024. Um, but one of the no the trends I noticed in Texas so similarly over the last uh, 20 years or so is that there's, you know, been Democratic candidates for state Supreme Court um, have also been closing the gap with Republican candidates. 
um, primarily because state Supreme Court justices are running out of the the Houston area. But I wonder just, you know, as somebody who who lives in Texas and, and, and follows politics there, would you be willing to share your perspective on how the electorate in Texas may or may not be shifting? Well, we like to say, because it's true, that Houston's the most diverse city in the nation. And so, you know, diversity is not a new thing in Houston. And you think about what makes Houston, Houston's you know, space, medicine, shipping, logistics, oil and gas, all those things are inherently international. And so, you know, I went to school with the children of Saudi Aramco. So, you know, some people think that diversity is a new thing for Houston. It's not. Um, and the reason that we've had relative social harmony here is that um, it's hard to know who to be mad at. You know, it, it's not a monolithic society. It's in Sun Belt City, so there's various centers of power, some of them ethnic, some of them regional, some of them industrial. So people just kind of get, get about their business. But Houston ends up being almost roughly a third of the statewide vote. So Houston matters a lot if people vote. The other thing I could say that might be interesting to your audience is Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics are local. Now, that was probably true in his lifetime. You know, it's in about the last, you know, Bill White, when Bill White was running against uh, Rick Perry, I think all politics became national. It has stayed that way. And so, uh, you know, losing the space closest statewide election in Texas history is not the piece of history I intended to provide. But nobody else has gotten even remotely close because what happens? You know, the, the Democrats move left. They get beat up with the national Republicans and nobody around here, even the most liberal, think that uh, AOC or any of that woke stuff makes complete sense. And so it's just too easy to be bludgeoned with the national party and let the electorate do what it tends to do, which is to vote for less government and less interference. You know, that's my thumbnail analysis of what's going on in Texas. And will it change? Sure. You have just published a new book entitled Glorious Tensions, and we'll provide a link for, for listeners um, in the episode notes. But your, your book is really a warning against political extremism that is plaguing our country and also what we can do about it. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you characterize the threats that extremism pose to our society and, and democracy. Everything is a grand trade-off. Citizenship is a grand bargain between privilege and responsibility. And this is not Paul's statement. I think Henry Kissinger was the first person I ever heard say that, but lots of people have said it. By executing your social responsibility, you earn your social privilege. That is the grand bargain of citizenship in free society. And so today, you know, there's a lot of folks that are focused on their privilege less than their responsibility. And so turn the privilege word on its head a little bit from popular debate, but the point of the book is best articulated by saying, look, my whole life, I have noticed that in every discipline, not just in politics, in, in design, in business, in architecture, in science, there are two competing forces that have to be weighed against. And um, it is finding that balance point that's the answer. The answer is always in the middle. And so I tried to collect all the historical scholarship and the prior art and the best quotes throughout history and across disciplines to support this idea. My grandmother gave a speech in 1938, and I reproduced all the first third of the speech at the front of the book that said, these are the stakes. And my grandmother started the Women's Army, and she was, uh, after the war, she was, she was, she was first secretary of HEW, second ever over there in cabinet. 
And so she was in a position to know, and she gave this speech that was sort of got wide coverage at the time that said, extremism leads to despotism, to autocracy, to totalitarianism, to Hitler, if you want to put a name to it, um, on a fairly linear path. So again, if you clutch to the belief that, well, you know, I, I know what truth is and, uh, damn to anybody else who doesn't see what I see and things in the middle of the road get run over and stand for something that you don't stand for anything. You know, not only is that lazy, it's dangerous. But if you're not willing to do introspection that understands how your brain works and my brain works, if you're not willing to listen to other points of view, to do the work, to find the balance point in whatever. Um, and again, you're not just not part of the answer you are part of the problem and so i was trying to gently in a positive way encouraging people to lease your own brain lease your own you've already started to refer to this in terms of mentioning exam you know some introspection about how we how we think but you raise the issues in the book of social media which exacerbates our our confirmation bias um as well as as well as gerrymandering um, as key challenges to democratic with a small d uh, institutions and processes. Um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit more about the way you think individuals and institutions might address these challenges. Well, again, to give people some context, yeah, we talk a lot about confirmation bias. We talk about cognitive dissonance. We talked about the Gunning-Kruger effect, which are things that affect Kara's brain and Paul's brain and everybody's brain. And that is that you are prone to evidence. You know, you are prone to reject evidence that doesn't agree with things that you already believe. And philosophy is, as a discipline, lots of religion, um, you know, scientific analysis, and all those things exist so you can resist your own brain's what's tendency. And, and again, you, you can't learn to manage your brain until you admit what's wrong. And so, yes, um, anybody that cancels thoughts or says, gosh, you know, we, you know, we need a trigger room for students because college is supposed to be milk and honey and you're not supposed to have to confront people who disagree with you. You know, not only is that lazy, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. You know, you've got to get in the marketplace of ideas. You've got to see you're not always right. You've got to let iron sharpen. That's messy. That's messy. My father was a presiding officer of the Senate here for 18 years. And one of the least famous things that he ever said that was most interesting to me is in the middle of the sausage making, and he'd say, watch the process, watch the process. And again, it is not pretty, but generally gets to a much better place than either side would have got to. You do write about the case for compromise and, and reconciliation. Um, and so I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you can see how you would see compromise and, and reconciliation being able to play out uh, within the within the political process. So there, there's three things I think would improve the process. And one is open front news. You know, as a Texan, I'm glad it was a Texas president that signed the Voting Rights Act that that would serve us very well. And, and obviously, Article 5 of that is no more, according to the Supreme Court. But things have their well. 
The Voting Rights Act, to the extent it mandates single member districts or school boards, has just created balkanization, victory for the loudest candidate side. And so I think to move to open primaries and to step back from single member districts would get us to a better place. The other thing is nonpartisan redistricting. It's funny, as a Texan, I'm recommending two things that California already does. California is a mystery to most Texans. Well, they be. But I do think that those two things would help and stop rewarding the most radical voices. And then the third thing will surprise you a balanced budget amendment at the federal level would make people talk about things that are real. Because if, if you're going to govern, you have to realize that. 90% of your money goes to healthcare, it goes to infrastructure, it goes to law enforcement, and it goes to military and education. So if you're not allocating a scarce resource and you find the tax dollars against those priorities, you know, you've got time to do wedge issues and sell stuff and talk about, you know, abortion or ideology or, you know, somebody's latest tweet. I really think about switching them, and again, it was thirty-one trillion dollars in debt. So this would take twenty-five, thirty years to to implement without disrupting the economy. Because the government's become such a huge actor in the economy, it was this would all have to be done generally or gradually. But it, at least it would make us talk about things that are real. That is, you know, you have to tax a certain amount, and then that's you get to spend it, as opposed to stealing money from. Your children, your grandchildren, my children, my grandchildren. You know, they've stolen all of our children's money and their wealth through our grandchildren's money. And uh, to claim that that is morally superior, whether you're a Democrat, that's just wrong. You're stealing money from people that aren't born yet. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, you're playing to the moral hybrid. It's, it's lost me. And, and neither party has had the least bit of interest in fiscal discipline since Y2K. As someone who has founded and run a successful private equity firm, um, as, as well as a software company, and you've also been committed to to civic service, how do you see the role that business can play in civic education? And what more do you think businesses should be doing right now to strengthen democracy and, and solving some of the most pressing challenges we face? Businesses should be bright. You know, they know more about people. Then, you know, whatever ESG index gets published by popular media, you know, Washington Industrial Consultant Complex, you know, so pandering and playing along with trends, you know, I think business uh, loses credibility by doing that too much. And that is, you know, we're, we're afraid to offend anybody. So we're going to pretend that uh, ESG, that those three things have anything to do with each other and that you can combine index and then you start playing a game where you know, Tesla is not on the list, but General Motors is, you know, I mean, absurdity sacrifices credibility. And so I think don't engage in a lot of absurdity and social conversations. You don't have to respond to whatever the consultant driven DEI, ESG, alphabet soup of it is. Well, the other thing I think that people need to say Loudly, and again, I'm a policy guy. You know, I, I helped found the Bobby School of Public Policy at the University of Houston. I like policy. I think about policy, but my business career tells me that 
technology solve more problems than public policy ever did. And, and again, that's hard medicine for you, Kara, but um, think about it. Think about it. You know, policy never eliminates risk or creates wealth. It just moves it around. You know, technology actually can solve problems that policy just tends to manage and smear around, you know, where the risk and where the cost is. So I do think that government deserves, sorry, business deserves credit for investing in technology that solves more problems than policy. It's, we'll do a whole other episode on unintended consequences, but. Part of the problem with public policy is that we often don't revisit it and and make sure that it is working to address the problems it was meant to solve. And so business and 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 technology, it's government and and policy is always going to be playing catch up. um there's there's sort of a first move advantage when you're in business um and and with technology to develop and then, you know, think about the the unintended consequences later as as we're sort of grappling with right now as everyone's discussing artificial intelligence and, and what, you know, what that may lead to. Well, my favorite example is the luxury tax. And this was, a, I think it was a Carter, Carter era thing. And it was a populist feel good thing. Well, we're going to uh, put a surcharge on yachts made in America. And um, what happened? You know, of course, you know what happened. I mean, which people don't care where their yacht got built. And so the shipyards in America lay off a lot of hardworking middle-class Americans. And the rich people go buy their boats in Italy. Oh, wow. I feel so much better now. Well, you know, not only did it not raise any money or, or scratch the populist itch you were trying to, it social vengeance against the rich and what you're all about. You've got a bunch of nice guys laid off that work in shipyards and thought they had a real job. So uh, again, there's lots of examples there, but maybe you and I teach this course together. There's some synchronous. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Come at it from both a business and a policy perspective. Well, Paul Hobby, thank you so much for taking some time to discuss your book and also Texas politics. Um, Paul Hobby is the, the author of Glorious Tensions, Rediscovering Our Sacred Middle Ground in an Age of Extremism. And listeners, you can find the link to the book in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.